Welcome again to Grace Ann Arbor. Uh, my name is John Compton. There we go. I knew something seemed off. Uh, my name is John Compton. I am the pastor of mission here at Grace. Uh, a big part of my role in doing that is I am a, a church planting resident here, uh, which that means in about 20 months or so, uh, Grace will send me and my family out uh, to start a new church somewhere here in the southeast part of Michigan. Uh, for some of you, you've heard me say this before, and uh, just so you know, I'll say it again. Uh, I'll say it pretty much every time I'm up here uh, for a couple reasons. One is, is we always have new people, and always, we always try to introduce ourselves uh, for that reality. But secondly, I hope for some of you, I'm kind of like a, a, a buzzing gnat that's in your ear. Um, that as I talk about this church planning venture that uh, God's called me to, that you would maybe hear God's voice calling you to be a part of it. Um, you know, part of the, the goal of the residency is to, to be sent out with, with resources, and some of those resources are, are people um, to start this new church. So you may be wondering, well, what, what kind of church will this be like? Well, a, a lot's to still be determined. Um, you know, I had somebody after the first service ask me if there would be uh, goldfish for adults following the service, and I can probably make that happen for you. Um, but a lot of things are still yet to be determined. But w one thing that will be for sure is that, that this church will seek to display in many ways, in many forms, the beauty and the veracity of the gospel of Jesus. I'm very aware that many have uh, stopped attending church, have uh, given up on God, or, or uh, are skeptical towards church, because they've experienced Christianity as something that's just kind of completely meaningless with everyday life. It just doesn't seem to matter. And so my hope for this church is that based on the reality that if the gospel of Jesus is true, if Jesus really rose from the grave, then that's the most important news in the world, that its meaning should impact every sphere of all of our lives. And I believe we get a glimpse of that this morning as I continue our series of defining moments by looking at some uh, Old Testament characters. Uh, this week I'll be looking at Jacob. He is the grandson of Abraham, um, who Sung talked about last week. And you may wonder, like, well, what does somebody who lived thousands of years ago have to do with today? With Jacob, it's quite simple. The answer is one word, which is desire. Jacob is a man of great desire. And almost more than that, he is a man of frustrated desire. And I think this is where we relate to Jacob. Ronald Rollheiser begins his book, The Holy Longing, with these words. He writes, it is no easy task to walk this earth and find peace. Inside of us, it would seem something is at odds with the very rhythm of things, and we are forever restless, dissatisfied, frustrated, and aching. We are so overcharged with desire that it is hard to come to simple rest. Desire is always stronger than satisfaction. Rollheiser goes on to describe that this reality, that desire is always stronger than, than satisfaction, it creates in us a great dis-ease. And I know that regardless of how you came here this morning, regardless of your, your uh, religious upbringing, regardless of your political background, regardless of who you cheer for later today, what university you went to or are going to, 
all of us understand that desire, understand that dis-ease, because that desire is always stronger than satisfaction. And this dis-ease that we feel on a personal level, it's not just a personal problem, right? This dis-ease that we feel is the great disease of our world. It affects negatively every area of life. And so this morning, we're gonna look at this great disease. And first we're gonna look at the kind of some of the effects of this disease by looking and seeing it show up in Jacob's life. We're gonna kind of look at some modern attempts to cure the disease. And we're last gonna see how it's resolved for Jacob and what that might mean for us. So some signs and effects of this disease, some modern attempts to cure the disease and how it's resolved for us. But first, let me pray. Good and almighty God, we thank you that you have uh, brought us to this place. We pray that your spirit would move among us, that our eyes would be open to see you in ways we've never seen you before, that our hearts would be open to know you in ways that we haven't known you before. God, that however we come here, that you would change us through these words we're about to hear, through this meal that we're about to share. God, may the meditation of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, the story of Jacob, if you want to read it all, is found in chapters 25 through 35 of Genesis. But I want to begin with by looking at first the, the defining moment, kind of looking at the finale, um, which is, or the, the climax, which is in chapter 32. And I want to do something a little different. Normally we put the text up and you can kind of follow along, you pull it out on your Bible. I don't want you to do that. I want you to picture this, because this is a scene to be pictured. So if you'll humor me, if you'll close your eyes and picture with me a man who is all alone in the wilderness. And he is terrified. He is extremely anxious. And night is beginning to fall, so he chose to lay down trying to sleep, full of anxiety and all alone. And this is Jacob. And picture these words from Genesis chapter 32. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose up upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. You may open your eyes. Now this is a very intense scene that may make not a whole lot of sense, but we'll hopefully get some clarity as we kind of rewind and look at Jacob's life in a bit of a broader perspective. Like I said, Jacob's whole story is like 10 chapters. We don't have time to look at that, so I broke it down to just three, what I call my own chapters of Jacob's life that we're going to look at. So the first chapter is his birth and his early deception. 
See, Jacob is born the younger of twin boys. And when he's born, uh, the oldest comes first, and that's Esau. And then Jacob comes, and the text says that Jacob is grasping the heel of Esau. And so the text says that, that this is why they name him Jacob, because Jacob literally means to grasp the heel. Now, Jacob, this phrase, grasping the heel, it also has a figurative meaning, which is to be deceitful, to cheat, right? To kind of pull somebody back so you can pull your way ahead. And we see that this is very true of Jacob. Now, Jacob's parents are Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac is the son of Abraham that we talked about last week. And this is a very different story. See, last week with Abraham, you know, Abraham, he did some bad things, but there's a lot that he did well, that we should follow him as a role model. Jacob, yeah, not so much. Like, he's not somebody that is a hero of the faith that you really want to strive after. But he's somebody that we really understand because he's a person of desire. So, first, Jacob's first act of deception they're probably, Jacob and Esau are probably in their later teenage years. And Esau, as you see, has grown up to be a, a kind of man's man. He's big and strong. He loves to hunt. And one day, he comes back in from hunting, and he's starving. Now, quick side note, Esau is loved by their father, Isaac. Isaac loves to eat the, the food that Esau brings in from his hunting. And Jacob isn't really loved by his father. Jacob in our text says he loves to stay home and that he's loved by his mother. And so this day comes where Esau comes bursting in, he's starving, and Jacob happens to be alone and he's cooking. And so Esau demands for Jacob to give him the food. Now Jacob is a clever younger brother and he says, sure, I will give you this food if you sell me your birthright. And Esau very dramatically says, well, what's my birthright to me if I starve to death? And so he agrees and so... Esau gets his birthright, or Esau gives up his birthright, and Jacob gives him his food. All right, years pass by, and Isaac is getting very old. Isaac is becoming blind, and so he calls to Esau, his favorite son, and he says, Esau, go out one last time. Get my favorite animal, cook it, make my favorite dish, and then I will bless you. Right? And, and this will officially kind of transfer the patriarchy from, from uh, Isaac to Esau. So Esau runs out, and Rebekah overhears this. And Rebekah and Jacob, they come up with this clever plan, as you can kind of see depicted here, where Rebekah will make food that Isaac likes, and Jacob will pretend to be Esau. He will put lambskin on his arms, because Esau is hairy, and Jacob is not. And it works. Isaac's really blind. He likes the food. And so he blesses Jacob. And the way that this story is told is in Genesis is, is like the moment that Jacob receives the blessing and goes out one door, Esau comes running in the other door with food. And very quickly, Esau and Isaac realize that they've been deceived by Jacob. And Esau is angry. And he vows to kill Jacob. Now, I'm a younger brother. And Jacob's a younger brother. And Jacob does what all younger brothers do when we've crossed that line and we've been caught. Right? You run. And so Jacob runs. Now, before we look at the second chapter, I just want to highlight again, like, this disease that we experience, what it drives us to do is to be deceptive. 
right? This is what drives us to take shortcuts at work and school. This is what drives us to hide parts of ourselves from potential romantic partners, from current romantic partners, from friends. This is what drives us in the political world even to put spin on everything, right? This drive to, to always spin the truth so that our side, to the, our platform, so that our thing always looks the best is driven by this disease, by this desire that's never satisfied. And the thing with deception is it works sometimes in the moment, but almost always comes back to hurt us in the long haul, as we'll see with Jacob. So Jacob, chapter two, the deceived. So Jacob leaves his family, and he goes back to his mother's hometown. And when he gets here, he sees her, the most beautiful woman he's ever seen, Rachel. And the text says that he runs up to Rachel and he kisses her and he weeps. Now, a quick side note, if you're a, a single guy um, looking to get a girl, not, not the way to do it. Um, you know, I was, I was really hoping to find uh, a cartoon to kind of continue what I was doing, but this was cartoonish enough. Uh, you'll notice Jacob is going in for the kiss and Rachel just wants a handshake. She's just like, <laughs> nice to meet you. So Jacob and uh, Rachel, they go and meet Rachel's father, Laban, and Jacob and Laban do what they would do at the time, and they work out a deal. Jacob is going to work for seven years to marry Rachel. And so he does. He works for seven years. The night of the wedding comes, and the wedding, you know, is full of lots of wine drinking, and it's getting dark, and there's no electricity, and Laban does a little switcheroo. See, Rachel has an older sister, Leah, who's literally described in the Bible as someone who is hard on the eyes. And Laban switches out Rachel for Leah. Jacob has had plenty to drink, can't see very well, he marries Leah. The next morning he can see, he's sober, realizes what's happened. He's furious and he goes to Laban and he works out a deal with Laban that he will work another seven years for Rachel. And he does and he marries her as well. Now we see in this story three effects of this disease, right? One is overworking, right? Jacob ended up working 14 years for Rachel. And we do this too, right? We overwork, particularly at work in school. We think if I just put in more hours than everybody else, this ache, this desire will be satisfied. I'll achieve something that will meet, that will finally satisfy me. And if that doesn't work out, if we get burned there, what often happens is we do thing number two, which is what I call pendulum swinging, right? Jacob was at home, tried to receive, did all this work to get his father's blessing. He gets it. It doesn't satisfy him. So he runs away, and what does he do? The first pretty girl he sees, and he kisses her and weeps and thinks, she's it. She's what my heart's been longing for. She's what I've been looking for. Now what we do today, or at least what I do today, right, is I am prone to overworking, and I invest all this time and energy, and if I get burnt there, I pendulum swing to relationships. Right, when I was in school and a dating relationship, the school wasn't going well, I put all my hopes in whoever I was dating at the time. Now it's easy to think that if, if work's not going well, I go home and I'm like, I'll just focus on my family. They'll give me what I want. 
And again, desire is always stronger than satisfaction. And when we do these two things, when we overwork and we pendulum swing, over time, eventually somebody will take advantage of us, as Laban did with Jacob. It will be a boss, a manager, a coworker, boyfriend or a girlfriend, right? This disease consumes us. Now, before we see how this is resolved in Jacob's life, I want to take a quick step back and look at what are some modern attempts to cure this disease. And the two modern cures I just want to briefly talk about are connectivity and mobility. And I want to look at them in the areas of romantic relationships, work, and politics. I mentioned these three because all of us are probably right now experiencing dis-ease in probably all three areas, if we're really honest, right? Raise your hand if you're experiencing dis-ease in two out of the three of these areas. If you're next to your spouse, it's fine. <laughs> right? I mean, if you have a pulse, you, you, this, these are areas where desire is always stronger than satisfaction. And these have been around for centuries. And what's interesting, if you look at it, work and romantic relationships have almost always kind of been pretty similar, right? Long ago, uh, before connectivity and mobility, right, you would marry whoever was close to you, right? That was your option, was just who was around town or who lived at the farm down the road. Same with work. You would do the work that was close, something in your family, something in the town. But now, thankfully, right, we don't have to do that. We can travel, right? I'm very happy to not to be living in my hometown. I'm glad that I met my wife who's not from my hometown, right? I'm glad I'm not doing the work that my parents did, right? Things have gotten better in many ways, except for it's created this other kind of problem, right? Now we have so many options that it's created this dilemma that there are so many options out there that if we don't have a romantic partner, if we don't have a job, we just think we're worthless. And I don't know if it's worse, but equally as difficult maybe, is this reality that if we do have a romantic partner, if we do have a job, and again, desire is always greater than satisfaction, we're always left wondering, well, should I be looking for something else? Right, and it, it doesn't help that we know that a few clicks away are hundreds if not thousands of potential other partners, hundreds if not thousands of other jobs, right? We've LinkedIn emailing us like every week, like, hey, here are three jobs that could be great for you. Right, this disease is not solved with connectivity and mobility. And it's definitely not solved, particularly in the area of politics. You know, if you'll remember when you guys, when we all studied at some point in our lives, I imagine uh, Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. And in there, he has this great line where he hopes that all those who have died in the Civil War haven't died in vain, but that their deaths have really um, reborn the country to be uh, led by a government, by the people, for the people, of the people, or whatever order that is. Right? It's Democracy 101. And the challenge of democracy in our country, particularly at that time, was in many ways, communication, right? We're such a big country. How do we communicate well? How do we hear the voices of others and take that into account into our political choices and who we elect? And so I can imagine good-hearted politician, you know, decades ago, just dreaming of a day where there would be a platform that would increase communication, where people in the North could hear from the people in the South and vice versa, where people on the East Coast could hear from the people on the West Coast 
people on, in the city can hear from the people on the farm, right, and could take into account their opinions and thoughts. And we're in it, we're in the golden age, right? We can hop online at any point and see everybody's opinion all the time. And more than that, we can hear people's opinions about other people's opinions. And then we can hear people's opinions about the opinions of their opinions, right? We've made it, everybody. Right? This disease is not cured by connectivity and mobility. So that brings us back to Jacob. Oh, I forgot this. What these modern cures, all they've done is they've addressed symptoms of the disease, but not the disease itself. So for Jacob, we see the last chapter is Jacob being delivered. Jacob eventually leaves with his huge family. They leave Laban, and he's going back home. And he realizes he has to confront Esau, his brother. And so he sends some people, some of his men ahead to meet Esau and let him know that, the, that he's coming. And these men, they come back earlier than expected, and they tell him, Esau's on his way to meet you now. And he has 400 men with him. Jacob is terrified. Right, his fears are being realized. He realizes that his running around for 20 years has been just that, him running around. But he still has the same fate. Now, he doesn't give up. Jacob, you know, the clever, deceptive guy he is, he comes up with a clever scheme, kind of divides some people up, says a quick prayer asking God to deliver him. And then he sends people away. And he's left alone that night as this man comes and wrestles him. Now, I would love to spend a lot of time breaking down who this man is, this angel, this divine figure, but, but we, don't, we don't have that. It's somebody sent by God. It could perhaps be God himself. But I want to focus on these two verses. First is verse 28, where God said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. See, Israel literally means to strive, to wrestle with God. And that's what Jacob has been doing his whole life. He's ha- felt th- this disease. He's felt this desire for something. And it's God himself. But he thought he would find it in his birthright. He thought he would find it in the blessing of his father. He thought he would find it in the love of Rachel. But these are just things that have been pointing him to God himself. And the second verse is verse 30, where Jacob it says, So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, which is the Hebrew word for face, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And I want to point out these two words, prevailed and delivered. You see, Jacob's whole life, he has prevailed. Right? He prevailed over Esau. He prevailed over Esau and Isaac. He prevailed eventually over Laban and Rachel and Leah. He's prevailed. He's always gotten what he's wanted, and yet this disease has continued to consume him. And it's only God who can deliver him from the disease. It's God who comes to him and exhausts him and wears him house. And Jacob finally asks for the blessing from the one who can give him what he's looking for, which is God himself. And this is so important for us. Because many of us here, we know how to prevail. We know how to do well at school or at work. 
Maybe we've done well and convinced somebody to marry us. Maybe we've prevailed in these areas. But this disease is still consuming us because it's only God who can deliver us. And he's done it by loving us, by giving up his son for us. Because a descendant of Jacob would come one day and Jesus of Nazareth who would not prevail over men but would let himself be handed over to them that he would be arrested and beaten and taken to the cross. And on the cross, he would experience real weakness. In our text, we read about God kind of faking weakness for Jacob's sake. But on the cross, Jesus experiences the weakness of death and suffering for us. And thankfully, he rose from the grave, opening up a new life, bringing birth a new world. And we know that one day when Christ returns, all things will be made new. So I want to leave us with a couple thoughts. One is that desire is good. Now I know sometimes religions and maybe your experience with Christianity has taught that desire is bad, something to be avoided, something to be contained. But that's not what we see. Desire ultimately points us to God. Even frustrated desire points us to God. C.S. Lewis writes, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger while well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim while well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire while well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And we were made for this other world that God has redeemed and is making new in Jesus Christ. And secondly, not only is desire good, but being desperate is good. I know it's easy when things are not going well, when everything seems to be falling apart, when you feel desperate, it feels like something must be really wrong with us. But as we see in our text, it is in our desperate moments that God so often meets us because it's in those moments that we give up on everything else and seek God. Another author writes, desperation causes us to be open to radical solutions, willing to take all manner of risk in order to find what we were looking for Desperate ones seek with an all-consuming intensity, for they, know, for they know that their life depends upon it. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate communion. And for those of you who choose to do this, I want to encourage you to, to do a little mental exercise for me. I want you to consider the places that you've been seeking to find satisfaction for your deep desire. And I want you to leave them in your chair. Leave them underneath your chair. I don't want you to take them with you out from this place. And come forward and come and commune with the risen Lord. The one who desires you. The one who is desperate for you. The one who seeks you with an all-consuming intensity that led him to the cross for you. Let me pray. Good and gracious God, we thank you for this wonderful world that you have created, for the moon, the stars, the skies, for the trees, for the apples. 
And we thank you that when this world fell into sin, that you did not give up on it, but that you gave your son, not to condemn the world, but to save it. And so, God, we ask that as we get ready to come forward to commune with you, that you would turn this bread and wine to be the very presence of Jesus Christ. That our hearts would be lifted up to you. That our desires would be satisfied in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.